Hello and welcome to Sigma Sports Presents, Matt Stevens Unplugged. And we have a brand new email address. If you want to get in touch for any reason, why not email us at podcast at sigmasports.com and we really would love to hear from you. Now, I'm very excited about this episode because my guest is none other than Nicholas Roach. What can I tell you about Nico? Well, growing up, he lived both in Ireland and in France and went on to become Irish national champion twice. Now he's retired from bike racing, having enjoyed an incredible career. Recently, he went way out of his comfort zone to appear on TV show Dancing with the Stars in Ireland and we chat all about how that has changed his life. We also chat about how lockdown in 2020 effectively pressed a reset button and bike racing will probably never be the same again. But was he photographed as a toddler picking his nose while his dad celebrated on the podium of the 1987 Tour de France? There's only one way to find out, folks. This is the Nico Roach episode. You know it's that time again. Nicholas Roach is one of Ireland's most consistently successful bike racers, with 22, yes, 22 Grand Tours completed, two stage victories at the Vuelta, and a couple of top 10 finishes in GC as well, as well as having two National Road Champs jerseys. Now, having grown up as the son of a triple crown winning father, cycling was perhaps always his destiny, but his route to finding a career on two wheels is perhaps not as you might expect it. This was a very special recording for me because I had the pleasure of joining Nico in his hotel room and chatting with him face to face. Now, we would have recorded in my hotel room, but I blew a fuse trying to boil the kettle. Anyway, we joined this recording just after Nico and I ordered some room service on Nico's tab. Check it out. Welcome, Nico, to the podcast. Thanks. Great to be on the podcast with you. And can you, for the um, for the listeners, can you just tell us where we are? <laughs> so we're somewhere in London, uh, close enough to the Discovery Studios, in a hotel. We're actually commentating together at the moment, so we said might as well get the podcast, and we're doing it in the room. We are indeed. We don't. We plan to do it in my room just to add a bit of context and not weirdly come up to Nico's room. I boiled the kettle earlier on. I think it blew all the fuses. There is one. There is one plug socket near the near the mirror that says no kettles. So I didn't use that one. I used another one, and then um, then it all went it all went funny. So I've rung up reception and they've still not sent anybody. So I'm up with Nico. Um, I'm not going to disclose the room number. Actually, we can because this pod won't be going out. Oh no! If it goes out Friday. We won't disclose the room. They could come on Saturday to your room. Okay. The fans, oh, the fans, so, yeah, yeah, we don't, of them. yeah, we don't, we don't <laughs> want to disclose the room number. But mate, it's, it's great to see, you, mate. I mean, you're. It's the first time you have done some commentary in the past, um, but this is the first time you've done a proper week long race. Is it with or? Well, I've actually done a week long races, but of a Grand Tour. Yeah, sure. Um, I did. I did. I think uh, five, eight days of the Giro. Did again. I think six or seven days in the Tour 2018. And then last year got, I think, five to six days of the Vuelta. But it definitely is the first time that I cover a race, yeah, <laughs> a full race, race. A full race from start to finish. Yeah, we're doing Tour de Basque Country. It's a pleasure working with you, mate. We we have done some stuff at the Ruler Classic within the past. Actually, last yeah. year we had a nice chat looking back over over your briefly over your career. Um, and we've done a little bit of punditry at the Tour, I think, in, 20, in 2019. We might have done or 20, 2018. But So do you like, do you like commentating? I do absolutely love it, actually, and you know it's great the two two of us working. I think we're we're a good team. It's quite conversational, um, and and we can we can talk about many different topics from 
you know, from back when you raced, when I race and what I saw, how racing is changing into this year. So uh, I think we can cover a lot of ground from, from personal experience. And it's great just to be able to kind of, I think we, we both share that, that, uh, that great passion for, for cycling. And we get very enthusiastic when we talk about uh, cycling as a whole. That, I think that's the thing. My, I've been doing it for about, I think it's nine, no, nine or 10 years now. Um, my first race was actually the Arctic race of Norway back in, back in 2013 with Carlton Kirby, who I learned a lot, a, a lot from. But um, it is, it's wanting to impart, people who listen, I feel like I want to share as much as I can and, and deconstruct and, and working with great co-commentators like yourself, deconstruct the sport and share that passion. So what, what bit do you enjoy the most? So the bit I enjoy the most is cycling from TV is very different than what you feel in the bike. And obviously, I got this feeling oh, on room service. We've got oh, yeah, the beers coming, yeah, so beers, we'll yeah. continue. <laughs> no, uh, we, we don't need to pause this bit. That was quite tight, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. Quite quick. Oh, there's the right. Oh, go on, get me card. Yeah, just, just standing yeah, the door. Sure. And the bottle opener. Actually, I have one. Oh, yeah, that's what I heard. Yeah, I thought I heard it. Well, we've got the beers, a couple of pronies. Yeah. Well, cheers, mate. Exactly. It's really nice working with you. Cheers, yeah. You too. Pleasure. You know, other beers are available. Um, yeah. These are indeed peronies. I mean, it's, uh, well, we're in, actually in Chiswick. We're in London. I'm an Englishman. You're an Irishman. And an Italian beer. A Spanish race. It's kind of... It's yeah, European. Yes, yeah, fully European, mate. Exactly. So let's have a quick swig. I'm a bit parched, actually. Hey, dry mouth from talking mm. all day. So, yes, what I was saying was, um, I feel that when I talk to cycling fans around the world, there's a lot of things that I think are obvious, but you cannot understand unless you're actually explained or told. Right. And I think when you're not in the business for a long time, even riders who retired four or five years ago would not have noticed some of the changes of the last couple of years, especially post-COVID. Cycling has yeah. changed dramatically post-COVID. It's like every race is like the last race of the year almost, on if there's like no more races at all. Um and I found that where knowing what's happening and feeling a little bit what I would have felt a year ago in that position, but things that you cannot receive or, 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 or get from watching a proper image, you cannot feel tension on an image. You cannot feel when the bunch is actually stressed, when there is this drag racing, it looks like the bunch, you know, the helicopter view, it's all compact and you don't know if the bunch is going fast or slow because you don't really get that perception. But you also don't feel if the rider are nervous or not because everyone looks so comfortable. The speed is up. Yeah. And I can tell you and, and try to explain what it is to be in that situation because I, I just, I still remember it. Maybe in five years, I won't see it the same way. So my, what I enjoy now is trying to explain that cycling is actually not just about crossing the line first, that it's a lot more complex, that this is the beauty of this sport. It's like in a race, there's actually a lot going on, but from start to finish, Yep. Not just a boring start and the breakaway goes and nothing happened. No, there's a game. Who is going to ride? Why? With who? Who is going to be protected? Because when you start look at the start sheet and what we did yesterday, we, we can pick out 50 guys. Yep. Who is going to win? Who is maybe going to try for go for top 10? Who might try to go for the mountains jersey and this and that? But really, reality is that out of this, you kind of have to filter it all the way down to maybe just four or five for the GC. Realistically, maybe even two. Yeah. And then even for the sprint stage today, he says, yes, there is 20 quick guys, but who is the quickest uh, out of the kind of non-sprinter field that is there? Sure. So it's all these kind of things that uh, I just enjoy 
looking at it and then discussing it with you. You have a point of view, I have a point of view and giving different aspects of, of cycling that you might not just see when you look at an image and, and just hear just normal commentary uh, about teams and history and stuff like that, but more about the feeling that you can that you can get at that moment. Yeah, it's a lovely way of putting it, Nico, because I think one of the things that, that I've learned um, and that people enjoy and people comment on is the undoubtedly incredibly rich texture of cycling. So you've got the landscape, which we're talking about, that it passes through, the history of that landscape, the climate, um, the cuisine, for example. Then you've got laid over the top of that, this bike race that passes through, 160 riders in the field, for example, each with a different set of emotions, each with a different set of physical feelings, each with a very different set of objectives for that day. For some guys, it might be surviving an injury. Other guys, it's trying to win. <laughs> and everything in between. And then all the, and then all the, in, the different environmental factors as well that goes on. And then add to, add to that the, the, the constant advances of technology, which are making riders go faster and faster. You've got all these things going on at once. And I think you could talk for weeks and weeks and weeks and you wouldn't fully explain it because there's too much to. And, and that, for me, is why I love this sport so much. It's so rich in texture. And then add to that the context of the race, like today's race, Basque Country, started in 1929. And it was only halted because of this, the, the Spanish Civil War and all that. And that's why these, these, these races have this, uh, have this kudos, have this credibility, have this prestige. And it's that sense of history that makes it so important when a rider wins a stage or whatever. And there's so much to try and get across. Um, and, and that, to me, is, is one of the most important things about commentary and, and getting that emotion across and educating people. And, and your point on um, how the racing has changed over the last couple of years is a really valid one. I'd like to explore that a little bit. Mm. Um, seen comments after Tour of Flanders just a few days ago um, on how high the standard is. And you raced, I mean, this time last year, you were in, in amongst it. You, you were racing, weren't you? Yeah. You only retired at the end of the season. So what was it like in the last couple of years? Describe exactly what you mean post-COVID, how the racing has changed. Because let's be honest, it is, from a viewer's perspective, it's, ridiculously exciting it's far more on there's bits we can predict but not as much we don't know what's going on why do you think that is and what is it like to be amongst a riding at that sort of level so i think that um the big the first time i noticed there was going to be a massive change was at the dauphine because we started dauphine so 2020 okay. when everything reopened um the dauphine every morning it was like we don't know if we're starting tomorrow and we didn't know if the season one was, was going yeah. to continue. The tour was planned end of August, beginning of September. But if there was going to be like high numbers of COVID or spread of the virus amongst riders, it was going to be big drama, especially with most of the Tour de France riders being in the Dauphiné. Um, so every day it was like, okay, we got our tests done, PCRs done, whatever. It was just really, really complicated. And every morning it was like, okay, we're good to go. So if you're a rider and you're told that this could be the last race of the year and you haven't raced all year, and basically for some riders in 2020, their whole career or contracts were depending on it, but also even if you are under contract and you have responsibilities to go and win a race because you're a team leader, uh, because it's not only about a contract, it's about doing your job right. Yeah. So everything combined, you just had no choice just to go for it. And every day it was started and race as a classic 
And that was one of the most difficult races I've ever done in my career. It was those five days, because I think it was only five days, if I remember well. Yeah, it was five days it, yeah. of the Dauphiné. It was surreal. The level was high. Everyone had nine months to get ready or eight months to get ready. Uh, everyone was fit. Um, and, and there was no... There was no preparation race. It was already full on because, like I said, you didn't know if it was going to be the last race. Yeah. And that kind of continued on because then you went to the tour and the same in the tour, we didn't know if we were going to get to Paris. Yeah. And the way it looked at Nice, that Nice was declared red zone two days before the start of Paris and that it had to have no crowds and they were putting big barriers with uh, wooden uh, planks on the side just to make sure that people would not go to the start-finish area. It was crazy. Yeah. So it was all about okay, this could be the last stage of the tour. Let's let's go for it. And it was raced and raced. Obviously, then the tour kind of settled in and you, it's a long way till the end. But still, then you quickly realize that there are riders who are dominating. And if you're not the quickest sprinter or the quickest time trialist or let's call him the specialist, yeah. you had no chance of winning. A part one, a breakaway. But then because there was so few breakaways... Well, every breakaway was like gold. So if you didn't get all the teams, all the right teams in the breakaway, the breakaway would not go. There would always be a team, someone on the radio saying, all right, go and go and go. And we're seeing like most of the breakaways that will work have to be around 15 riders, which is kind of big majority of the teams. I think most races have 20, 22 teams. There's always one or two team who misses it, one who doesn't need to be in it, and one who physically just can't or tried to be in it and just did not succeed. So if you see even in the Giro last year, like it took like two and a half hours sometimes for the breakaway to go. <laughs> I was commentating, mate. You were it was you were unbelievable. racing. It. it was there was one day I remember, and it went over a lot of big bridges. Do you remember in the wind, like big, big tall bridges they've got that span these valleys? Typical engineering you see in Sicily and and in Italy. And um, I was commentating with Ned, and on that we were seventy five k's in or something, and the brake still hadn't gone. And it was just foot, and it was up these long drags. Happened in the tour as well, but it. I've never seen such a a dramatic shift in in the way things are raced, but but as you said, you talk about 2020, then about 2021. It just seems to have continued. It seems to have set a new, strange template for racing, doesn't it? Totally. It was almost like a reset. Yeah. Because even if you feel today, there was a lot of there, there was some kind of a hierarchy still around yeah. there, and a lot of these young riders, they're they're not afraid to go. And even like today, for example, again, the, the, the importance of a breakaway. Before it was like a pro, almost not a, like an unwritten rule. You know, the, the breakaway goes, kind of there's a bit of nerves. The group takes one, two minutes. And then after two minutes, kind of, okay, now's the time. Like, have a little wee break. I'll get it up. Go get bottles, whatever, after the kind of hard battle for the breakaway. Today, it's it's dangerous to stop. Yeah. Because you never know. There could be a team who were not capable of being in that breakaway. And someone on the radio saying, guys, we missed a breakaway. Let's go for it. And because they won't have the power to to pull to close the gap, what they will do is that they will attack again yeah. and hoping that the race will start again. Most times it doesn't. Yeah. But even if they attack, they might get two or three attacks. But if you're stopped on the side of the road, it's a problem. And also the fact that today in modern cycling, there's a lot of barrages that was, wasn't the case years ago. Before, if you stop for... For we as a group, you were kind of authorized a little bit to kind of drift yeah. through the cars, make it back to the bunch. Same with a puncture. If you come from a puncture or a crash, if you look carefully today, the riders 
kind of are in front of the cars and the team cars are behind. Not saying lucky enough, there's always a bit of kind of camaraderie in the peloton. So you will have a sports director kind of moves out of the way to kind of help you drag you yeah. as much as you can because he knows that some next round might be his rider um, done with, with our car. So they kind of help each other. But there's a lot of things that have changed where it's not, as, it's not as easy as before to plan a stop, to go for bottles. Uh, and and even look today, like 80k to go or for, for 50k to go, sorry, that um, the quit step rider who, who goes basically for no reason. Van Seven, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I was saying, but why is he going here? It's not a really difficult climb. There's still a minute 30. Was he thinking to bridge across? But then it's a sprinter's kind of finish. So what, 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 what was his point there? Uh, did he think he was going to go on his own? Maybe he was kind of to re- reanimate the whole race. But this, this kids now, because a lot of them are the younger riders, yeah. they're just not afraid to try. Yeah. And and because today the stronger riders are, are so strong and dominating the sport, if you don't actually give it a go and try something a little bit crazy, well, you, you're not there. So it's unless you have really a... Perf- interesting, yeah. Unless you have a very, very specific role for a team leader and it's kind of a plan... Then, then you don't have so many opportunities for you. Yeah, that's a really, really interesting point. I was listening to an interview, just to go off on a slight tangent, but in relation to what you were saying, if we we could probably count on our hands now, like taking out uh, Bernal because of injuries, that awful injury. Thank goodness he's back riding. Just looking, looking right, really, isn't he? Um, there's only right now maybe four or five riders that can win a Grand Tour. You know, there's when you when you think about it. In this current era, you know, there's it, there's a there's a real dominance, and Bora this year um, they still want to do well in Grand Tours, but they they're saying Aldeg saying right, we, we've got Vlasov in. Um, the landscape has changed, um, and our sponsors know we haven't got a rod that's probably going to win a Grand Tour unless something really strange happens, like you know half the big hitters fall off. But what we want to do is win stages, so we come into these races far more aggressively. Rather than defending eighth place overall or ninth or whatever, although it's still a remarkable result to finish course, inside. The, yeah. You know, I mean, you finished twelfth in the, in the tour before. You know what it's like to just be, be there or thereabouts. Um, but rather than do that, so you, they're, they're racing differently and racing far more aggressively to take the opportunities when they can. So yeah. the stages that might not ordinarily have a real natural selection are harder than ever because other teams are hitting them full gas yeah, with potential so, team leaders. It, it, exactly. Yeah. You know, so. To try and get to try and pull back some glory, you know, rather than say finish fifteenth in the tour, we can get a stage win, uh, and that combined with the dominance of, of the current crop of, of young riders um, leads to, and with this reset that you were talking about, and also all this open source information in relation to training and nutrition, seeing the young riders coming through, and and it's worth mentioning on the walk back to the hotel uh, from Discovery, we were talking about about the race, and then the the, the good young riders and. And what are your thoughts? I think it's, it's worth mentioning on the pod about the under-23 class in men's cycling now. When you look at the most dominant riders now, there's, there's a few of old-school heavy hitters, but it's all young riders coming through. And I think they should bin off the under-23 and the under-25 category in, in races. What, what do you think? So definitely on the under-25. I, I think yeah. today, uh, at 25, you're almost old. Yeah, so de- it, definitely. It, yeah. So it, it, doesn't, it doesn't make sense in the Tour de France today to have the young riders jersey at 25. No, uh, especially when the last winners yeah. have been all under 25. And, yeah. and as we also discussed, it, it was very original for the Vuelta to bring in for the first time an under 25 jersey. Yeah. Obviously, I think it's the, all the ASO 
Um, well, they own the race. Now, obviously, they? they've they've bought the race now, so I think that they they brought that in where instead of the Combine jersey. Yeah. Um, but but I, I totally agree, and that, and that was one of the things where five six years ago there was all this push about world tour teams had to have an under twenty three development team. And most of the World Tour teams invested a lot of money in having these kind of base teams, uh, development teams, but also like even camps, you know, for example, DSM, they have a proper village in, in Limburg. They invested in, in apartment blocks uh, and they have a village for the women's team and the Devo team. Yeah. Today, if you think about how many riders are, I mean, you know, it would almost make sense to almost have like another 20 team yeah. just to get the first year or second year after junior because yeah. then third year fourth year most of the riders are already or in a continental team yeah. or in a world team and it's very very common that even now junior riders the good junior riders they, they might not go in the under 23 team they might go to a smaller country team where i remember when i turned professional it was kind of saying oh if you turn pro with a country team you're there for life today is different it's like a country yeah. team almost replaces some of the Devo teams yeah. to give the riders a chance to perform already at a higher level in World Tour teams sometimes when they, or World Tour races sorry sometimes when they get uh, invited like for example Eos um, Eos sorry the Contadors team yeah. you know the, it's they 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 go to the, to the Giro and uh, most of the team is actually under under twenty three or the same with you know for example at a smaller level or budget uh, Andrew McQuaid team Trinity management yeah. it's it's under twenty three professional team but it, it just so but they will maybe hopefully fingers crossed if Tour Britain organizers are listening for me uh, ride Tour Britain but Mick, Mick are you listening <laughs> <laughs> maybe ride Tour Britain because that's so important for them yeah. but but it is where these young riders now kind of skip the under 23 or they do one year or two yeah. years where I remember when I like I think the Italians still have the rule that you must do one year under 23 before turning professional. Some countries now, like right. you saw Renko just going from junior into, yeah. or even in DSM again, uh, Marco Brenner, he also went from junior into into the World Tour team. Indeed, and um, Rodriguez, the Spaniard uh, on Ineos, mm. um, has been with a couple of years, went straight from junior, junior national TT champion of Spain, straight through to Ineos. Um, but that, that's happening more and often. What I do find, to continue on, on that topic that we started there as well, what I do find very interesting is how the age group switched dramatically. Yeah. As in, it went from where the experienced riders kind of had the advantage, like over longer stages, over kind of the classics with experience and this and that, where, where, where now it looks like age and experience is not that important. And suddenly the younger riders, this new kind of more aggressive, punchier type racing is a lot more suitable for these younger riders. I think um, my generation, we were trained one way. And I think that's the key. That's the key word yeah. there. It's already cut across is the way that we're traditionally trained, which meant there was a conditioning that didn't necessarily equip you. It took more time, didn't it? Of course, it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, we were all doing these three times, 20-minute thresholds and this and that. that. No one does 20-minute thresholds It's anymore. all steady stuff, yeah. wasn't it? Relatively steady anyway, it, yeah. It, it, so where we're now, it, it's like two minutes, 500 watts, one, then 30 seconds break, and one minute, 700 watts, and 30 seconds break. Training is gone. Like, you, you need to have a notepad in your, in your, <laughs> or, or do a screenshot of, of your Dropbox before you, you, you go training. And, and I think... What happens is riders are a lot more obviously well trained. There's a lot more knowledge today about yeah. training, 
but I think also they're capable of, you know, changing rhythm, doing like these really, really high intensity work that we were more, and we talked about it again yesterday about, it was just more like almost constantly a drag race. You'd leave yeah. the pedal, the, the breakaway takes seven, eight minutes, 10 minutes. And then it was just like on and on and on. And the race would be done from the back. It would be gradually, just like gradually ratcheting up the tempo. And if you couldn't hold on to through fatigue, you get dropped rather than not being able to produce maximum power. Exactly. It's the other way around now. And now it's the opposite. Yeah, yeah. You, you see yeah. the bunch kind of, it goes basically from 180 riders to 30. <laughs> there's, <laughs> yeah. no, there's no in between anymore. Yeah. And then from there on, then there's the final attacks and all that. Yeah. So it's kind of funny to see how, how this new kind of racing suited um, riders who have been, let's say, more more used to training the, the, the kind of modern way. Yeah. Obviously, there's always a few exceptions. You're going to say, oh, yeah, but what about Valverde? Oh, yeah, but what about this guy, this guy? I mean, it's, I'm, I'm talking globally, not yeah, just yeah. trying to go into point out an exception. There's always sure. going to find someone who's going to say, oh, yeah, you're yeah. wrong. But but if you look at it as a whole, like out of 10 riders, like in in – Six, six or seven of them would be like under twenty-five as a, as a, almost totally. a leader, yeah, yeah. and then the next and and when you're thirty, you're already almost apart. You know, from a couple of handful, you're you're almost like a road captain. Yeah. Where before my when I started, my road captains were 38, 40. Yeah. You know, there there were Cyril Desel and Tosato and and these guys and Michael Rogers, but they were thirty-eight, forty. They weren't thirty. Yeah. No, it's interesting the way it's changed. And you talked about when you started. That I think it's like. To, know a little bit more about that i mean we know that um you come from a, an amazing cycling family um your, your dad Stephen, who i raced against i mean that that's i mean ages me pretty well but i i raced just towards the back end of your dad's career or we actually raced a few times together which was a real privilege because he was one of my absolute heroes mate absolute heroes uh, as was sean um robert miller at the time so and that's the beauty of this sport although I'm going off on another tangent, is the fact that you can look up to the people you admire, want to be like, want to aspire to be like, and then a couple of years down the line, you're there on the start line, and it's like, <laughs> whoa, it, there's a beautiful demographic, sorry, sorry, dem democratic nature to the sport that allows people with drive and desire to, to do that. And, and, I, and I, I love that about sport in general. Uh, and also the fact that with cycling, although talked about it, the way it changes there are riders like Valverde at the extreme end at 41 42 and there's riders at 19 old, he's old enough to be their father mm. and they're racing together and that's just you know 15 year 20 year spread of ages but how did you sounds like a silly question asking Nico Roach <laughs> how he got into cycling but I'd, I'd like to know uh, what was it like growing up in a family where your dad was a superstar and you were on the podium with him when, when he won the tour. I, I, I was watching that as a 17 year old and there you were with your little Carrera hat on mate. I mean, how much, how many memories have you, have you, you've got of that? Yeah. So, um, so we, we weren't allowed on the podium yet. That was, that came later on. Oh, right. I, I was at the step of the podiums. Yes, that's yeah, right. Yeah. right. Okay. I remember so, something. Yeah. yeah. I was at the step of the podiums. I always looked at, like yesterday when we saw Roglish and his son was there and he's been there quite, quite often now. Uh, I think back back in the 80s, uh, wives and family were not kind of welcome to the race. They were seen as a distraction, where today they're seen as a, as a proper support. Yeah, totally. Uh, and I think, you know, the, a lot of things have changed in cycling and, and the vision of being that kind of selfish rider where you just have to eat, train, and be just focusing on cycling. And everything that is not related to your bike and your legs is a distraction has kind of changed have evolved. Thankfully, yeah, yeah. you see riders now are capable to having a much better 
quality of life in terms of relationships. If you it's look at her age, yeah, most, yeah, yeah. Of, most of her age has had catastrophes around relationships just to go into that, where, where today having um, a normal kind of, let's say, lifestyle or relationship is a lot more possible than, than 20 years ago or 15 years ago. To go back to the to the podium, um, it's also great now that that you, you quite often see that the families are are there and they're not considered as you know pollution or distraction, and they and that they were not wanted before. It wasn't yeah. like they were they were not welcome, which is you know I'm, I've been in teams where on rest days of a grand tour you were not allowed to have your 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 partners or your friends or your family. It was all about relaxing and if and if they were going to come they weren't allowed to be in the same hotel you know i've been in different teams where on the opposite they were welcome to eat at your own dinner table on the rest day it was like okay we get all the wives and whatever partners yeah. at, at the dinner table and i thought it bring it brought so much more energy and you could see everybody smile and you thought you were not in the bike race anymore yeah, yeah. and i thought that was much more valuable than than you having to to, to to sneak out the hotel the back door to see your wife and kid in the car park because they're not allowed the hotel but, but but I've lived both of them, um, yeah. not always personally, but I lived riders who are in that in that in that uh, in that position, and um, I I did not get the privilege to be to be photographed on the actual podium, but I was at the foot of it uh, right, in the, the hands foot, yeah, of my yeah. granddad actually, <laughs> and there's a few photos of, with me with me and my dad, but uh, um, one of the the, the, the no, I was gonna say the the famous one is there's one where it looks like I'm picking my nose, but I'm actually not picking my nose. If you look closely, <laughs> I actually have my Nico I, trying to set the record straight. Yeah, <laughs> uh, exactly. So if you look at that photo, I'm not picking my nose. Actually, I think it's in my mouth, but I think I have you know it's kind of baby's hand there. But uh, but yeah, so a lot of my memories are I'm not quite sure if they are kind of made up because I've had so much information yeah. and I've seen so many photos, so many video cassettes because I can't even say they are DVDs, YouTube videos or, or podcasts because even on the radio they've, they've replayed some of the old, um, uh, they're not even interviews, they're, you know, like the, the proper records. Yeah. Uh, and so I have all this kind of made up memory, but my real memories from cycling are I think from later on when I was like six, seven and, and okay. like no one really remembers when they're two or three. I think no. when you're six, seven, eight, you have a few flashbacks. Yep. Um, but anyway, I, I've always cycled. Uh, but for me, cycling was my my escape. It was to go from, I, w- I lived in a small village in the Parisian escort, escorts. And for me, it was just to go and kick the ball with my friends and to go from A to B. Uh, it was without asking your parents to drive you. And I was a small little village, quite safe. Was, so that, the, was that the house with the, the basement that's yeah. parking on? I, I went there. Yeah. I went there in, in 1990. So okay, we, yeah, we, we, yeah, yeah, and um, we were impressed because your dad had a nice car with a, with a basement garage. Oh, he had a bit, and uh, my dad was a was a car old car um, collector. He had a few Triumphs and NGBs. That was his thing. He showed us that before the ride. He took us around and showed us this this car that was parked underneath. <laughs> it was a white sports car. That's all I can remember. This uh, is so that's probably your Porsche then. There, there we go. He had a white Porsche. <laughs> that, that was later on. Uh, at early stages, he collected old cars and then he got into more modern cars at that stage. But but he had actually a proper mechanics um, uh, setup. So, you know, with the, the, the hole underneath yeah. to go underneath and go and kind of fix all the, the stuff. That was his passion. And at the time, they used to take two months off. So, yeah, yeah, so when they put the bike up in October and pick it up in December and for two months, what I, they, they just did something completely different. Yeah. 
Um, so I started kind of the house had quite some nice grounds and I could race around the house and myself and my sister would kind of dress up with some of the old Carrera clothes or whatever and, and race around the garden. And I was, I was, those were the Indiren years and I was Indiren. My sister was in love with Claudia Capucci. Okay. Yeah. So she was always Capucci. Uh, I was Indiren and we'd race around the garden and it'd be GCs and we'd pretend, you know, it was like a little embankment in the house and that would be the, the KOMs and all that. But, but that was not the serious bit. And, um, basically when I was 10, we decided to move back to Ireland. Okay. And um, that year, so 11, sorry. And that year, my dad was giving the prizes. So we moved that in August, just before school year. And um, my dad just asked me, said, oh, I'm going to give a, the, 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 it's, the, it's the annual kind of prize giving for, for this kind of club league. Uh, will, you, will you join me? And I think there's an underage race. To, do you want to give it a go? So my mother had a... A, a geos which was already old but now it's even older an old geos with the, the chromes and all that from from when my dad was with tonton tappy in yeah. the uh, late 80s what an amazing jersey that was yeah that was great yeah Flipping and, and the bikes were, were spectacular the geos with the chrome forks everything was it was kind of modern for the time yeah heavy as a brick yeah. <laughs> or yeah. a couple of bricks but so that was kind of the, i went there we stopped at um my uh at the local bike shop in in dundrum and got a pair of shoes fixed a bit of cleats on got a helmet and off i went and um never ridden cleats nothing but gave it a go and i finished second and i absolutely loved it and asked santa for a bike for christmas so a bike of my own which i did get and that's kind of started uh cycling a little bit more in ireland but um socially i started at the same time, I was playing soccer with uh, with school and stuff like okay. that. So I was kind of playing soccer, cycling when I had time. Then my parents decided to put me in the, the famous rugby school in Ireland called Blackrock College. Right, okay. And I went to play to play rugby then. Uh, and I fell totally in love with the sport. Apart that a year later, I did my cruises ligament. Right. And obviously the best um, recovery for or rehab for your is riding, cruise, is riding your yeah, bicycle. Yeah. Non-impact, you know. Non-impact, exactly. It's kind of swimming or 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 cycling. And uh, at that that year, we decided to move back to France because you know it's been always back and forth. Uh, when when we talked about oh, where's where's home for you? Like yeah. originally home, and where's your local town? I was like, well, my local town. I, I could give you about five local towns, <laughs> depend what year you want to to know about. But um, the whole idea was, um, we moved to France, had a damaged knee, and started cycling. A bit more seriously and suddenly i got very good very quickly because i used to do five days a week rugby and two days cycling so obviously by the time i got to sunday's race yeah. i was on my hands and knees yeah. and um, i realized that now that i was only cycling i was kind of quite decent and i fell let's say a bit more in love with it and it's always easier when you start winning races it's kind of fun yeah when you're getting totally. your, your bottom whipped every weekend it's 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 tough yeah so so i kind of picked up and i said ah oh, i'm actually getting good at that so from there on i only cycled and obviously with school and stuff like that but but as in sports i didn't do all the other 10 sports that i was doing at the time sure. when i was back in ireland and and then a couple of years later then kind of made my my way through and turned pro when i was 19. what was it on your first team cofferless cofferless who yeah. was on the squad of that? Can you remember how many of your teammates? Of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Blimey, yeah. Uh, I haven't, like, just for the record, I haven't fired up pro cycling stats because it's just a conversation, you know. Yeah. So, but, so we go, we go, who else? 
Wigom, Rig for Brugge, Jimmy Casper, um, Chavanel. Yeah. Oh, it's a right uh, team. Is, yeah. yeah. Amel Moynard, I mentioned him. He's probably not the most famous riders, but um, we, we, our friendship started in, in we were stagiaire and, and shared the same room as a stagiaire. And then, uh, and then we let's say we, we went through through war together, as in from from our first Neo Pro battles uh, to then eventually even being in BMC together, yeah. Uh, and really riding the tour together, and again the struggles with that year with with Richie crashing out and trying to save the tour with uh, bringing Caruso in top ten in the last week, and and it was just the two of us really in that kind of uh, fighting to bring Caruso and the support in the mountains and. We went through a lot, and I actually made him move to Nice uh, early on in her life. And uh, I, actually, that happened when I eventually decided to move to Nice for the small story. I decided to move to Italy. <laughs> he always held a grudge on me for that, but he's still living there, and I, I see him like still see him quite quite often. And I'm really happy he's actually involved now with this new Chinese team. Oh right, um, okay. yeah. Uh, so he's been kind of, um, and he's also taken uh, the, the was it Tour de Ovar, the Tour de Provence, Alpe Provence. Yep. Uh, manager role as well. Um, um, Maritime du Var. That's the yeah, one. Yeah, zero six eighty three. I think yeah. is the yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's the easiest. The, the, the code. Yeah, 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 the code. Yeah. So, so it was great, but but so we go a long way back. So that was the beginning of one of my my longest friendship in in cycling. Uh, but yeah, it was it was fun. Obviously, even like Joe Friday Cat, who became one of the the kind of cycling designers and all that of of his own kit. Um, who else was there? Oh, then there was a few Spaniards. There was a guy called Luis, Luis Perez. He was kind okay. of the, the type yeah. of guy who was just really, really good at the Vuelta. And you just wouldn't see him all year. Right. Uh, and also, um, um, a ride of oh, Moncuche. Okay. Obviously. David, yeah. yeah, David Moncuche. And um, a rider called um, Bingen Fernandez, who who's still a very popular um director sportif in the cars today he's been in a few teams now okay. but uh all the same we he always made this funny joke one time he so he, he spoke perfect french he was actually basque as well uh speaking of pay basque and he always made this french he's like oh it was it was in french but you can literally translate it in english and one time he comes up to me and springs all the bottle and he says ah oh, how are you today and I says ah oh, i'm good and he goes and by the way can you count and i goes uh, well, yes. But he says, well, don't count on me. <laughs> All right. <laughs> For today, don't count that's, on me. That's a good one. So, that's a really good way uh, of putting uh, it. Isn't yeah. It? So, like, look at it. It's seven, 18 years later, and I still laugh about him uh, coming up to me with the bottles uh, into the finish. Uh, and says, Nico, can you count? I said, yeah, don't count on me. That's a great one. <laughs> that, that, that is a good one. We briefly touched on the fact that you've moved around a bit. Quite a nomadic lifestyle. I mean, but home is now Nice. Yep. Yeah, Monaco. Uh, Monaco, sorry, just just but so and we did I don't normally ask people who come on the podcast uh, I I just ask them where their hometown is, but I don't tell them there's going to be a quiz. Okay. Uh, but I've already told you there's going to be a quiz. Yeah. It's going to be about Monaco. Okay. Um it's four questions, all multiple choice, so there's no stress. Um and I'll be really honest with you, I rattled them up in the last 20 minutes before I came before I came downstairs. So my handwriting is going to be a bit awful. But, uh, Niall, it's time for you to hit the jingle, mate. It's time for the Monaco quiz. Yo, yo. What's up? You all ready? Uh-huh. Let's do it. Ta-ta, turn off your phone. That's right. Get your thinking cap on. Yeah, yeah. It's time. What time? Time for the Monaco quiz. There you go. Uh, what do you reckon to the jingle? 
good, 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 good. good it's kind of more Brooklyn than Monaco style, but yeah, uh, well, there's some good feedback there. Just uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a uh, yeah, quite idiosyncratic um, quiz quiz jingle, but uh, yeah, definitely more rap infused. Right, um, the Monaco quiz coming up. Let's okay, go. here we go. Come I'm on, curious. Writing. My writing is absolutely atrocious. That was just like an email alert. So I hope that well, it would have recorded it, but just adds to the. Uh, the natural feel of today's pod. Right. Okay. Question one. Multiple choice. No worries. Monaco. Nico, what two figures, either human or animal, stand either side on the coat of arms of Monaco? So the Monaco coat of arms. Yep. Okay. Is it two kings? So king either side. Two monks. So a monk either side. An owl on one side and a whale on the other or a monk on one side and a mermaid on the other side. Ooh. Let's check it red and white. I could picture it. That's correct. You are correct there. Yeah, you are correct. Uh, it's a check it red, red I've, and white. I've never, never checked on the sides. So you've got the shield and then, yeah. and then the Latin yeah. and then there's two figures either side. Like, there is on most cases. everywhere like. because, um, you know, the number plates are shorter in Monaco and obviously all the UE cars have it longer. So there's like always two holes where you put your number plate, right. where normally the screws are. And you can buy this logo that you stick there that covers the hole. This will be this will be on there. So it's, I, can't, I have no excuse saying, oh, I haven't even seen it because I see about 50 a day. Um, I would have thought a king and a monk or something like that. Um, definitely not the owl. I'm not sure about the mermaids. Um, is it two kings, two monks, king and a monk? It is, uh, yeah, it is a principality, so you kind of assume there'd be some king somewhere, but... Okay, I'm gonna chance it. Is there a 50-50 or a call the crowd or call a friend? Um, I tell you what, I tell you what, um, you can call Niall. He's a, he's a fellow Irishman. Niall, um, um... <laughs> <laughs> We're roping you into the quiz here, mate. Oh, what no, do you I reckon? Be listening. Yeah, yeah. So basically, the, the Monaco coat of arms. I can't believe he wasn't listening. Can we, can we do this like the you know like the TV show and have Nico repeat the question to me? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. Is sorry, I need to read it again. <laughs> so, so Wait, here we go. What are the two figures on each side of the crest of Monaco? Is it two kings, two monks? An owl and a whale, a monk and a mermaid. <laughs> I, think I think it's going to be human. Yes. I reckon it'll be human given it's Monaco. But there, it's not big enough to have animals. Um, oh, there is a bit of wildlife in Monaco. You saw a wildlife. You including yourself. <laughs> um, I go to after midnight. <laughs> I'll go, I think it's either kings or, or monks. And I reckon, I reckon there's symmetry there. So, like, I'll let you choose, kings or monks. Okay, let's go for kings. It's monks. It's oh. two monks. Oh, oh I've got to think about it because so. the cathedral is, and also because it shouldn't be kings, they're princes to start with. Exactly, it's only prince of Monaco. Yeah, so it's good. I mean, you're narrowing it down there now. Oh, we get one of these now. I'll have to press this on myself. <laughs> 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 oh. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. Well, um, you're nearly there, so yeah. uh, but unfortunately it was wrong. So move on to question two, and thanks so very much. This is a lovely segment, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, next time we have an, um, an Irish person on, we need to bring in Niall. Let's uh, phone an Irishman. Uh, <laughs> right, uh, next up. <laughs> okay. Question two. What family or house 
um, ruled Monaco from 1297. And their crest, as you talked about earlier on, is the red and white colours. Grimaldi. It's, is it Gribaldi? <laughs> Bonaparte, Poggio or Grimaldi? Grimaldi. It's, I'm going to give him an extra point there because yeah. he got it first off Grimaldi. Well done. Yeah. Good bit of history yeah, yeah, there. there. Two points. There's another cling for me there. <laughs> <laughs> hey, thank you. there. So you're back to 100% because okay. you've redeemed yourself because yeah. you've got a bonus. Um, question three. When, Nico, was the first Monaco Grand Prix held? Oof. Was it 1927? 1929, 1931, or 1933? Ah, come on. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like you said the 20s, the 50s, oh, or no. the 80s. Oh, no, mate. No, I've, I'm, uh, people, I've been criticised before. Yeah, yeah. About this. I, I'm going to contest that question and make it unfair. <laughs> um... Was there a 150th birthday coming or something like that? Well, it wouldn't make any difference anyway. But I suppose it's like the history of the motor, <sighs> again, motor I would say 27, because 29, that's like crisis time. So would you, yeah, I guess, I'd go with 27, but purely random. It's 1929. 29. 29. Um, <clears throat> it, 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 it. Ah. But you can redeem yourself because of the bonus points uh, thing that we have built in. Okay. Final question on the Monaco quiz. Okay, it's a corker, this one is. Um, well, I think it is anyway. Right, Monaco, incredibly, won the 1971 Eurovision Song Contest. Yeah, yeah, that's what I did with my face, my eyebrows raised. Yeah. Um, I didn't think I had a and, and get this, it was held in Dublin. Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, okay, so Monaco won the 1971 Eurovision Song Contest held in Dublin. But what was the name of the winning song by the singer Severine? So it's a female singer called Severine. Okay. Uh, and the song, heard I, of Severine. nor have I, uh, but the song had quite a long title, which I've translated from the French. Okay. Okay. Uh, so all English here. Um, so the title of the winning song, 1971 Universal Song Contest, was it called A, a goat, a tiger, a shark, <laughs> B, a car, a beach, the moon, C, the sea, our love, shall we, or D, a beach, a tree, a street. That's got to be C, no? Would there be a song called uh, La Mer Le... Oh. There's Herbe. Is it that one? That was, what, what's tree? Herbe. Herbe. Yeah, it'd be... Cool. Air, I don't know. I guess there was a group called Earth, Wind and Shower. Uh, Earth, Earth, Wind and Fire. Fire. So why not call the song Eagle, Shark and... How? <laughs> No, I still go for C. You but, for C. Yeah, although I think that's wrong, and it's because you gave me three answers with animals. It's got to be maybe one of those. But is there a 50-50? <laughs> I no. go, I go for C. Well, I'll tell you what. No, let's do. Let's go. Let's go for a fifty-fifty. Okay. Let's go fifty-fifty. Okay. Definitely not being a millionaire tonight. It is between. Um, it is either D or B. So it's either <laughs> a car, a beach, or the moon, or a bench, a tree, and a street. Okay, I say B. It's D. Oh, oh no! I did a cracking job. Oh, I was, that was, oh, that was miserable. That was cruel. That was cruel. <laughs> uh, but you still got fifty percent. And it's time for a round of applause from our assembled studio audience. Right. <laughs> Good knowledge, though. Good knowledge, but some some uh, yeah. yeah, some tangential questions there. But Very. I did I did like that European uh, European Song Contest question. Okay. Um, 
you look after yourself. You're you're a devilishly handsome man, and you've been on on the dancing show in in Ireland. What was that like, mate? Because um, I've been I've watched your progress through um, through Instagram because I couldn't couldn't watch it in in uh, where I live. But that must have been a right experience for you. Is it called Dancing with the Stars Island? Yeah. Yeah. So how did that come about? Was it through an agent or, or and, and what and what did you first think when you were offered it? Because because I would be terrified. Yeah, so <laughs> terrified came on training one. Okay. When I was asked about it, I was excited. Right. Uh, because I felt that this uh, the first thing I said, so basically it came across as um I've been working in Ireland with um not a management company, but kind of a it's called Sports Endorse, a little company there. Um, that kind of started up I think a couple of years ago. And they they called me uh, when I announced I was going to retire early November, uh, this uh, October, sorry, uh, mid mid October. Yeah. I, I hadn't. I was planning to go on a little holiday, and I and I remember in the holiday thinking about did I do the right choice or not, and getting all these emails about contracts and 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 my first question was, what date is it? Uh, just because in October I was you know I had kind of talked with, kind of already planned my twenty two year ahead and hoping that I was going to work a bit on TV on Eurosport yeah. and, and GCN and I was like okay give me the dates if it's during the Giro the Tour the Volta it's, not, uh, yeah. it, it's a no-go and um, basically they 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 said oh it's from January to March and I was like oh wow <laughs> so okay perfect time for perfect this thing, yeah, yeah. So then I was like, okay let's go for it without really realizing what an adventure I was going to put myself through yeah in a good and a bad way, because I mean, it's, it's, it's a life changing experience. And, um, and I'm taking, and I'm saying this very, very seriously. Uh, I got home and uh, went to my physio and, um, started talking with him. He says, well, look, you know what? Uh, so he's a physio and nutritionist and he's like, Oh, I did all the nutrition for, um, so the lady who won it, I think four or five years ago, she was Miss France. She even did a book on nutrition and how she she fueled through the the show and obviously right. being being a model, kind of all the way of like in a healthy way because Miss France sure. is is not uh, is not catwalk, you know. So it's yeah. it more about personality, exactly. Yeah, yeah. 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 So so anyway, she she won it four or five years ago, and so he put me in contact with her and uh, and I she was nice enough to pick up the phone and talk to me and she said, you know, it, it's it's going to be tough. And she kind of already gave me the warnings and you have to commit. Don't, yeah. don't do anything else than the show. Uh, but you will see, you will have some incredible um, memories and you will be a changed man when the show is over. Right. And basically um, that kind of set the tone for me. And then I came to Ireland then in, um, in the, in the first week of, of December, met my dance partner, and uh, had kind of a two, three week training camp up to Christmas to kind of get up to, well, not up to speed, but the way it works is the first dance, they gave you three weeks to kind of four weeks, sorry, to, to start it. Obviously, you know, from starting from scratch, you have a bit more time, yeah. go through Christmas. And you just worth it. You've done nothing like this before in your life. Nothing. You? Just a, yeah, because you're just a bike rider. Yeah. yeah. Say just a bike rider. That's all yeah, you've done. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, that's the thing. When you're a cyclist, you're just a cyclist. Yeah. You're, you're nothing else. So... So, yeah, so basically, and also, you know, just even, like, it's one thing, you know, being on the sofa show with, with Aura, Brad, and, and Adam Blight, or or Dan, or even Kelly, and you're talking about something, it's, it's, it's still, okay, shy the first time because the camera's there, 
but you're also in your comfort zone. You're talking about things you know, that you know. You, yeah, yeah. Totally, I don't have yeah. to learn to, to, and I can, I can speak cycling for ages and I had done a lot of public speeches and motivational talk in with, you know, some, some corporate rides. So I've been quite used to kind of talking to an audience. Is one thing talking to an audience or doing an interview like, or talking to a camera when it's not cycling related, somehow it created some kind of a, almost like a wall. Right. And, uh, and it's incredible how on my first show, how shy I was and I'm, I'm, I'm known to be quiet, but once I kind of open up, I'm not too shy. I'm just kind of quiet and reserved. And once I'm in my comfort zone, then I kind of open up and talk freely. Uh, like Nico, seriously, on this podcast, I mean, I, I love, I love talking, but it's, a, it's about the guest and, and, you know, without wanting to cut across too much, you have spoken most openly. I've, get, I've given you a question. You just run with it and you've spoken, you know, expansively. And that's brilliant. And clearly you, you've got a gift to be able to do that, which is, which is wonderful, but sorry. No, you're right. I think, I think that was one of my strong points always. And, and I think why I was also very popular with the media, especially in the cycling world is I never had really a filter and I got myself in trouble sometimes for not having a filter. But I also, it also felt, shows a human side as well. Yeah, and I also it? think that you know, th- th- this that was my strong point is I had an, an opinion and a strong opinion, and I thought it was why why say something that I don't think or or just to kind of look good or whatever. So I kind of was risked it and said, all right, this is what I think, yeah. rightly or wrong, and then I defend, and then if I'm wrong, I just say sorry, I was wrong. But but I kind of always defended my opinion. But when it comes to proper camera and and dancing. When, when you know you're a bad dancer and the only thing is you're trying and praying that you don't trip or trip your partner and make an absolute fool of yourself. Mm. Because I, I understand why some very high-profile celebrities don't really go and do that show because they don't want to look like an idiot. Yeah. And if they do it wrong, they look like an idiot. There's all this competition side as well. I think, you know, I'm just putting my mind in if I was, you know, an actor or whatever. You see, like, normally they're, they're kind of not downgrading myself, but the kind of mid-range celebrities yep. or or just kind of profiles that are trying to grow. But it's very rare you see like a global superstar doing one of this show because one, I think they're they're bad losers and they want to be eliminated first or second compared to maybe a TV host that is not as popular on the third channel of the national TV. Yeah. Obviously without any disrespect, this no, is I just my you. I know what you mean. Nico. This is yeah, all yeah. what I'm thinking. So like even the show that they 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 were really happy because I think in terms of kind of popularity worldwide, that was one of the bigger profiles. But for me, it was huge. One, because it reunited with me with Ireland after being away for so long. It was just so good to be there for almost four months, three and a yeah. half months. Yeah. I came back a week uh, for Christmas and New Year to Monaco, be there with my family who are in Nice just down the road. Sure. But but it was great. And my, my grandfather and my auntie have kind of some some very serious health issues. And for me to be there three months with them when I've been traveling so much, and they've been there throughout all my career, if it's by text, physically going to race. And, you know, I, I didn't take in a hotel or I didn't take an apartment. I stayed with my grandparents for four months. Oh, fantastic. Just because I said, you know, there's a day where your grandparents are not there anymore. And I didn't want to be regretting what that I was staying yeah. in a hotel when yeah. when I have my spare room. And it's actually, it's funny, my grandparents call my room my my room. Like the spare room, my room, because it's a home from home. Really. It is, yeah, and yeah. you know what? I, with traveling back and forth to Ireland through through my career, I kind of always had a suitcase, uh, spare wheels, and stuff like that. So I just go up, and I don't even ask, "Oh, where am I sleeping tonight?" As I go there, and the press is full of my stuff. Yeah. Um, also, because 
sorry, I hope Ryanair is not a sponsor, but Ryanair, <laughs> Ryanair suitcases are They're so not. bloody expensive <laughs> that I just keep my clothes in Ireland. Good idea. Uh, Good idea rather than, and, you know, sometimes just so, so handy to travel with a backpack and just go there and, and, and have your own stuff. But to go back to the dancing, it was... So I, the first week was incredible because... You kind of, you know, you think, all right, it can't be that bad and can't be that difficult. And you start doing step one, step two, kind of going through the music. And that, sorry, that you, you kind of learn without the music first, the steps. And then the first time the music goes on, you're kind of saying, oh, crap. It's not it's not just about walking steps or dancing steps for that music. It's also doing it with the actual beat. Yeah. And then it gets a whole lot com- more complicated. And not only I was a bad dancer, but I just could not hear the beat. And that nice. was, yeah. So lucky enough, my girlf- my, my, not my girlfriend, my, uh, my partner's boyfriend yep. um, is a, a singer and he had this studio underneath the, the dance studio. So at the beginning he came, he'd come in an hour or two and help me out. And he's actually also won the show. Uh, oh, right. So he's been Karen. through the whole process. Yeah. Right. Okay. So for him, it was great because he wasn't particularly, he wasn't a dancer. He was a singer. Right and ended up being a very good dancer and, and won the show with Karen, this, I think the first or the second year. And so he was there and, he, and sometimes she would give me some vocabulary, but he would kind of translate in a kind of non-dancing kind of thing. And he really, really helped me. Um, although even like sometimes he would show me with, with Karen the steps. So I had great support from him and he would teach me to, to, to learn the beats, the one, two, three, or the fours right. or the eights or whatever the dance was. But because at the beginning, I just I just could not hear. I could hear it if I started. If I started counting one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. But if I started focusing on something else and I'd lost it, I just couldn't pick it up. Yeah. And that was so important to go through the competition. But anyway, to, to go back to, to, to show one, uh, I got there um, on, on the Saturday and you do like a rehearsal. And the first time you actually see the, the dance floor. And you do it in, in the studio and you have the mirrors. Obviously, when you're dancing on your own, and you're looking at yourself in the mirror, it's very easy to, or easier to replicate on the timing of your dance partner. Okay. Once the mirror is gone, you don't see your dance partner. Yeah. And, and that got a lot more problematic. Right. And then obviously you kind of have to also act, see where the camera is, look at the camera while actually you're thinking of the steps, the timing and everything. And the judge said on, on after my first dance that I was like a rabbit uh, shocked in the headlights, and that's exactly what I was. It's quite harsh, but again, I mean, you, but it you is. Are, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like, honest. I mean, as, you, you, yeah. can, you kind of need that because honesty, I'm, don't you? You can't, you can't dress it up, mate. Otherwise, no. you never improve. And, and that's that's how it was. And everyone's like, "Oh, the judge, they were he was really harsh on you. How do you feel?" I says, "Well, you know what? When you're not good in cycling, they don't give you a tap on the shoulder. You, they just tell you you messed up today." Yeah. And and maybe I don't know some some TV hosts are not used for people being telling them they're bad or they're crap or whatever language you want to use. Mm. But in cycling, is very often and you oh and you don't win that often unless you're Roglic or one of the superstars. Yeah. So you're constantly trying to improve and to make it better because you know you're not the best. Yeah. I knew I wasn't the best dancer. I knew I was probably one of the worst dancers when I started. Uh, but so, but it was true. I think there was no better term to say that I was like, yeah, a rabbit caught in the headlights. I had no idea what was happening. Right. And, I, and I was off time. All I did was like a TT. I knew the steps. I didn't went, I did not make one mistake in the steps. I did all the steps. 
but the timing was way too fast. I just wanted to get it through that one minute 45 of dancing <laughs> and put, you know, put that away behind me and move to dance too. Right. And, and, and this, the first show was, was incredibly difficult. Uh, even the post dance interview, I couldn't talk. I was speechless. It was just, I didn't know what to say, how to react. I got, I grew with the show. I, I got more confident. I also started to really enjoy dancing. Yeah. Um, to the point where I think my, my, my best dance, uh, ever was the last dance. And the same judge that said that, um, I was like a rabbit in the headlights also said, on my last dance that it was the best improvement in because you know i was in the dance off and then i got eliminated yeah. in the dance off yes. in the quarterfinals so i danced twice the same dance it was pretty good yeah okay, well obviously following instagram i kept seeing it every week he's still there yeah Nick, nico's still there oh he's still there it was just great actually <laughs> it was great you know we all know how g is so brutally honest and he and g sent me a text when the show was over uh, and I, I really appreciated him and he said oh nico uh Great to see you uh, dancing. To be honest, when you started the first one, we never thought you'd get that far. Congrats. <laughs> and that was like winning the Tour de France for me, you know? <laughs> but but it's true. Brilliant. And I got fun of it, a lot of fun out of it. But there was weeks where I just wanted to punch the wall. Right. There, there yeah, were yeah. weeks that up to the Saturday morning, I just could not dance the one minute 40 true. And, and I could see my dance partner, like she was biting her lips in frustration. And there was days, for example, I would dance like five to seven hours a day. And there was days where she was like, okay, stop, go home now, go, go rest. Yeah. At the beginning of the show, I was still very, um, a little bit kind of too cautious as in, I was feeling guilty for not going on the bike enough. So oh, I was okay. getting, yes, uh, yeah, one, I, yeah, I was still kind of going out the bike at eight o'clock in the morning and then going for a run in the evening and being kind of and I was so tired that I almost kind of had a little bit of a burn down halfway through yeah. the show in February. And I actually had had a hard two weeks where, where I, I was just, I was just run down because I, I was dancing 20 hours a day, uh, 20 hours a week, sorry, 25 hours a week. That's I was cycling six, seven hours because I was going out, you know, for an hour, an hour and a half. So I was still going out five times a week, yeah. but for just an hour, an hour and a half. Uh, and then I was doing 10K runs because I was feeling guilty and I wanted to lose or not to gain too much weight. And I could just see my yeah, body right. kind of changing so you, over the winter. Yeah, that's so. It's, it's amazing because you, you are still, and I, the what question I didn't ask you was about the transition. And clearly that was a really good example of the fact that you still hadn't switched off being a pro cyclist. No. And, and the first part of, of doing that was in the same year that you were a pro. Mm. And it is hard to shake that off. That isn't something that happens immediately. You have these particular urges or, or not even desires but there's a necessity to do something that you're used to this routine and also which is we're hardwired as, as pros to keep lean as well yeah. you're aware of that your, your body changing as, yeah. as you, you put a little bit of weight in the winter and you want to get back to it so that clearly had had an impact on you in your dancing even though you were clearly exercising a shitload d- yeah. during you know it's, it's really interesting that yeah and that, that's why i would say that after that breakdown because i did have a breakdown um, I, and the level, and I was going through week after week and the level was getting higher and higher. And I also had to up my game and I was upping my game. But then there was a moment where I actually did almost three weeks without touching my bike. 
Right. And I don't think I would have done that even in the winter. No. Uh, and I managed to get three weeks without touching my bike. And I was so focused on the dancing and we're dancing more and everything. And I just, it was a clear cut. I realized that I could survive without going on a bike three days in a row. Yeah. Uh, but but it took me bloody two months yeah. of dancing to realize, and a burnout to realize that. And because my dance partner said, just said, all right, that's it. There's nothing going in today. Go home. Yeah. Or, you know, j- just take a break. And I was yawning. I, I just, I was going worse than, than I wasn't getting better through the day. Sure. Uh, just because I just could not focus. Yeah. And there's one where she, she just stopped training. So all right, that's it. We're not training today. Just take a day off, go back. And we had done like two or three hours, but not the five or six that we're going sure. to do. And I think her being kind of hard on me, I always said like if she was a cycling coach, she would have made me bloody win the Tour de France because she, <laughs> she was, in, in fairness to her, um, she was very, very good at, at coaching me. And, and that's and sorry. I, I understand, understanding that to having the, sorry, having the, the wherewithal and the, and the, and the intuition and that, that going back to earlier on when you were talking about, the change of attitudes in teams about having family there and looking at somebody and just not beating them up and, and sensing, honestly, it's not and saying, take a rest. It's, it's fine. Mm-hmm. And that's quite a hard thing to say to an athlete, an elite athlete often. And because we're especially coming from a, a couple of different generations between us both, you know, you'd feel guilty about taking yeah, a day off. Totally. And even if, and, and back in the days when we were raiding, they'd still tell you to train when you've got sweat out of cold. It's like, what's all that about? It's, yeah. it's, but it's a, it's Actually, a slightly would... different thing, but it's, it's that mentality that we're, but for some to say, stop, it's, that's so refreshing and so massively important, isn't it? Yeah, when I, when I, exactly. Sweating at the cold. So I had COVID through the show and I was on the home trainer every day. And I was getting, and I was posting about it and I was getting all this message, you're crazy and this and that. I was like, I always remember like, you kind of had a sweat to cold out, you know? Uh, and obviously, oh, you know, so I, I was- So French as well, so French. It is, yeah. <laughs> but but it, it, was, it was, I wasn't doing a training session. Sure. I was killing time. If I went for a walk, I would have probably done a harder session than, than what I was on the bike. Yeah. But again, you know, you put the bike on the home trainer, you set the computer, you get dressed, you finish off, you clean up, you go for a shower, and yeah. suddenly you did an hour on the bike, but you've actually killed two hours. Yeah, and that's that's a lot when you're sitting in a in an apartment in, yeah, in yeah. quarantine. So that was kind of more the reason than than fitness, but 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 yeah, it's been again like the show, and and when the show came to an end on on my last dance, so Brian, that the main the harder judge, had also said that um, my last dance was. He said he's never seen so much improvement between my second last dance and my last dance. I said I was still quite nervous because I knew there was a big chance of me going home because we we're quite far in the competition. Yeah. And the level of the guys and women that were left there was really, really good. Yeah. And I knew that I was one of the, the worst one at this point. So I kind of knew I was, this could be my night. Borrowed time almost kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I was also happy with that because, you know, 10 weeks out of 12, um, that's not bad is it no for, for me like you know i i wanted i went onto the show and i wanted to live the experience i didn't want to be out first second or third i wanted to go five six weeks just to be able to to really embrace the experience after yeah. two weeks of the show you don't embrace the show you don't know nothing about the show you just learn to dance yeah where i wanted to kind of grow the show and expose myself and try you know the serious face of the tango to kind of more fun face in the american smooth and the Frank Sinatra songs and, you know, the Gene Kelly singing in the rain. So it was all about 
getting into this kind of acting, but also letting out a lot of emotions because I've been always very, very cold and straightforward and I call, you know, a cat a cat. And where there is like, no, some dances you have to be a pimp and you have to be like the realist, overconfident, cheeky guy. And then the next dance, you're Gene Kelly singing in the rain and it's all like, you know, the happy face, you're loving life. And so all these kind of emotions, you had to kind of learn to, to bring them out. So there was a lot of work on myself there as well. Yeah. And and my last dance, knowing that it was my last dance, I I was not as as stiff as or or worried because I kind of knew it was the end, and I just went out and enjoyed it. And actually, it's kind of funny talking with with Karen, my dance partner. She was like, I knew it was gonna go one way or the other. As like, or you're gonna absolutely gonna, you know, uh, can you say shit yourself in the show? I'm sorry, done, I was sent out. Fine. I, I, I did the S word earlier. Yeah. I apologize. Sorry. <laughs> uh, you can beep it uh, without one of your jingles. Um, and, and just do a terrible dance. Be- thank you. <laughs> because you're under pressure. Uh, or the opposite, just admit that it's going to be the last one and who cares and go for it. And I did. And when the dance finished, myself and Karen already kind of knew it was going to be the end. And I shed a tear, but I should—I didn't share a tear because I knew I was going to get eliminated. I shared a tear because the emotions were so high, and and it was the end of an adventure. Yeah. And and for me, it wasn't a problem being eliminated because I was at my place. If I did one week more, it would have been a miracle. Yeah. So I knew I had to go home, but it was just in a place had, of glory, just like I, just empty it exactly, just like, and enjoy it. As and, much and it was as just like the whole ten weeks, just kind of letting go and the highs and the low, and I just kind of almost relived the frustration, but also the satisfaction. When you finish that 1 minute 40 dance, the adrenaline rush you get is indescribable. Mm. You have such a high. Obviously, it's not like a bike race where it kind of lasts for years <laughs> or weeks even yeah. at the beginning anyway, but the, the, the victory is forever. Yeah. But the high was unbelievable. And you can't talk. My legs are shaking, everything. Obviously, after 10 minutes, it's kind of back down. Yeah. But the adrenaline you, you get is very, very addictive. And I I just loved the show. And I and I loved week after week, the whole routine, going into costume, dressing up, uh, one week playing, like I said, a happy guy. The next week playing a tango, really severe, seductive face. Do the guy playing this kind of pimp guy in a samba. <laughs> and... and or on my last one, which was uh, I Love Paris um, with Sinatra, which is kind of more this kind of more elegant kind of gentleman thing, which I really actually loved. So kind of you had to kind of metamorphose yourself a little bit like a chameleon. And I, I definitely learned a lot. And again, I wasn't afraid to expose myself, yeah. which is something that I've, okay, it was easy to, to do an interview, but you don't expose yourself when you do an interview. Here is just going in front of something where you're bad at and saying, look, not the best, but I try and do my best. Yeah. Really, really enjoyable chat. And, and quite clearly, the lovely segue into your cycling career and all, all those those cross references and, and how it made you feel. But clearly, um, cycling is one thing, but life's another, isn't it? There's, you know, and you're still a, a pretty young man. You've got yeah. everything's in front, in front of you. But it's lovely to see and the fact that. I normally do this podcast, I can't see the person, but seeing you here and the joy and the sparkle in your eye when you talk about what you've just experienced, something new in your life, um, is massively important. And you've been able to show people, probably for the very first time in your professional career, uh, aside from riding the bike, but you know, 
your personality quite often doesn't manage mm. to shine through, does it? But it's great that you, you've been able to do that. And clearly, you've got a taste for that, isn't it? So before we wrap things up, what's what's in store for you in the future? Obviously, more commentary. We know that. You're going to yeah, be doing hopefully. stuff with ASO as well, yeah. the tour. Um, we're going to continue. We've got another race after this one. We're doing Romandy in a few weeks' time. But what else, before we wrap up, um, are, you, are you doing with, you, with your time and, and your life? So, so yes, yeah, so obviously, uh, commentary and... Um, Mainly, I'm also working with Trinity Sport Management, uh, so I'll be helping at Andrew in the mountain bike. I'll be the, the mountain bike manager, which is really great. So, so Pete Kennett is kind of the head coach of the team. He he would go between the the mountain bike, the cyclocross, and and the road. In standard, is kind of more the road, and I'll be kind of the mountain bike, uh, and we kind of a little bit overlap. So there's sure. a few races where I'll come with Ian. Uh, Pete kind of comes from one to the other, which is great because we were all kind of in that Tour de France uh, 2015 uh, of course, team. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So it's great to be together and we're all, you know, we've we've had Andrew through our career as a manager. So it's kind of good that we're, we're still kind of the, the Trinity um, family a little yeah, bit. That's really nice. Uh, and it's nice for me to, to have that opportunity as well because, you know, when you when you retire, there's, there's, there's a lot of options, but it's but some options run out quicker than others. Um, and at the moment, I was also not very clear on what exactly I wanted to do. Uh, I absolutely love the commentary, um, but the, there's, there's a lot of things that I kind of have to try and decide as well. And, you know, helping out uh, Andrew with, with the mountain bike. I will also do some some of the road races. I'm doing on the Liège-Bastogne-Liège on the 23 in a week's time. So looking forward to that. And I'll be for the first time solo sports director, which I find very sp- frustrating. In actually, another twenty three, I don't want to go too long on this because it's like I wish I had a radio where I could coach the guys. Yeah, because there's only so much you can do from the car. Absolutely nothing in another twenty three race. Yeah, and there's no there's no older rider to help them out like you'd have in a pro race. So you're kind of saying, <laughs> actually, you should take out the radios in the pro peloton and bring them to the under 23 yeah. because that's when they need coaching. Yeah, that's quite, and, and quite it's, interesting. And I've, I've been thinking really about that. it for the last two weeks since I did my first race as a co-sports director with, with Ian. It's like, I have so much to give to the under 23s and this is and they, they're so hungry to know how things work and, and they want to listen to your stories. And I'm like, oh, I, to make I, an extra just, long team meeting the night before. Yeah. So, right, lads, hour and a half, room, whatever. But then you'd be bored. <laughs> That's it. But, but, but then it's like, but I, I can't talk to them on, on the bike. It sounds um, like that's something that, that you, uh, that is a frustration. But I think what that indicates, if you don't mind me saying, is somebody that cares about others. So you have a lot of empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to share your knowledge, which you do very generously when we're commentating, very generously when we're talking on this podcast today. And that's something that I think you'd be very good at going forwards. Mm. It's just finding the right forum, isn't it? But clearly, you know, imparting that experience that you have, that clear passion, is something that I think you'll continue to do regardless of what your decision is. And and you've obviously got your fingers in a lot of different pies, which is, which is important. And to wrap things up as well, Irish national coach on the road as well. Exactly, so yeah. that's the you know that's that's I mean the world championships again. Not a lot of events to do, but that's no worlds and Europeans. I mean, that, it's that's, big that's enough. important. Yeah, yeah. Well, it certainly is big enough. That. That must just to wrap things up. That must be really, really exciting. Really exciting, and, and it's it's great because you know the lads are my mates. Yeah, uh, and I'm I'm really, really motivated. You know, I, I, we were we were racing against each other or together uh, six months ago, and and obviously now I've been already doing quite some work to prepare the Europeans and the worlds for them, just to put them in the best conditions there. Yeah, obviously, you know, there's only so much I can do. It's going to depend on their performances of the day. 
cycling is is one of those sports where it's more about you know what happens in their team so my my influence is not that important uh through, through the year but just at least if i can be there and give them you know a little bit of insights on tactics and and bring my knowledge to them not as a competitor but but today as as a as a sports director i'd be really happy you know it's it's a great course for for sam in 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 munich um and you know eddie again for for the worlds he he has a it's very difficult to say he has a chance but i think he he will be he will be good it's a good yeah. course for him yeah great stuff well, nico it's been a pleasure thanks for having me in your room because of my power cut um we'll finish off the beers in a minute but nico it's been a pleasure thanks Cheers, that was mate. great talking with you thanks very much mate Cheers. Fantastic stuff. I really did enjoy that. And I'm delighted that Nico is enjoying life after cycling. And I'm really enjoying commentating with him as well. Thanks to Perry App Gwyneth for the podcast theme tune. And thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to like, subscribe and rate the pod. And want to recommend it to anyone else who struggles to hear a beat, but doesn't let that stop them dancing. Now, if you have any questions, comments or simply fancy getting in touch, why not email us at podcast at sigmasports.com. And finally, a massive thanks again to Nico for joining us on the podcast today and for allowing me to order some beers on his room tab. Cheers all, stay safe and goodbye.